Hey everybody, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. If you've had some success in life, if you have developed some leadership skills and you think you can help, you're really obligated to run and see if people want to elect you for office. What we know scientifically is the vaccines work because the vaccine is incredibly effective in preventing you from becoming sick with COVID. What I would say is all policy, public policy should be driven toward convincing people to be vaccinated. That's what's tearing us apart. It's not so much difference in ideology, but people are so distrustful of government and of each other. We need to work on the trust. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Today we have Dr. Bud Pierce for you. And Dr. Pierce, as he will call himself Bud, is one of the leading candidates on the Republican side of the aisle who's running for governor in 2022 and definitely someone that you should learn a little bit more about if you haven't already. And uh, Bud was born in Germany and he was raised in Riverside County, California. Uh, He also served in the Marine Corps and now he is a fairly successful physician uh, down in the Salem area, and he actually focuses his practice. Uh, he's basically a cancer doctor. So he helps uh, both minors as well as older folks uh, deal, deal with cancer and basically treat it. I love this episode for a couple reasons, but I think the main reason is you get a sense of how Dr. Pierce thinks. I'm always interested in physicians who find themselves on right of center, for example, and he has some sort of unconventional takes on COVID, I would say, you know, for like counterintuitive to what you might expect a medical professional to say, including some statements sort of undermining masks as effective or a useful public health tool. And I think it, it was interesting to hear him describe why. And I think he, his reasons make sense even to me, even if I might not agree with what he's asking us to subscribe to. But we also get to see a personal side of Dr. Pierce in this episode, talking about the passing of his wife, Selma, at the end of last year, as well as some tough policy questions on COVID, campaign finance reform, public education, homelessness, and public safety in Portland. We cover a lot of ground, but you, you get to see how Dr. Pierce is thinking about the most challenging issues we face. And I think it'll be instructive for folks who are trying to learn more about, uh, about his campaign. So the the only other thing we wanted to cover in this intro is uh, to encourage everyone to subscribe to the Substack. It's theoregonway.substack.com. And basically it's a newsletter service. Right now, Kevin Frazier, who we had on the podcast earlier on, created this op-ed page basically in the Oregon Way where folks could uh, you know, write in and contribute their ideas about Oregon's future. Um, and recently, we've created the liftoff, which is basically a weekly aggregation of the top political news. We call it everything you need to know about Oregon politics, government campaigns, and elections. And people are liking it so far. So if you want in on the liftoff uh, or the Oregon Way op-ed page, go to theoregonway.substack.com and subscribe. And we'd love to have you be part of that community. Titus, anything else before we jump into the episode? Yeah, and we'll actually, we're going to start in the very near future also posting transcripts from all of our podcast episodes. So you'll be able to see those on there as well, uh, in case you want to view that, since I know there has been some interest with that. But everybody, thanks again for tuning in. And I will say as a point of ignorance, Ben, I didn't realize, but there's actually no way to rate Spotify as five stars. So (laughs) some people are saying, I'm listening on Spotify. I have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to five stars. So my apologies for knowing absolutely nothing about Spotify. Uh, I don't even have it on my phone. I've only downloaded, I've only looked at it on my computer, which is not a great experience. Uh, but if you have Apple Podcasts, please give us five stars. And I believe you can subscribe either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. But uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks, everyone. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Today, we're really excited to have with us Dr. Bud Pierce. Uh, who, if you're watching us on YouTube, as you can see, even still has his lab coat on. Uh, So he said he just got done visiting with some patients and now he's podcasting. So uh, it's quite a diverse skill set that he's able to have. Uh, But Bud, really happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, How are you doing today? Doing great. We're busy in uh, medical care and it's uh, great to take a break away and talk a little bit about politics. Great. Yeah. Talking about politics is is always fun. So, uh, and my my dad's actually a physician and he prefers talking more about politics than medical care as well. Uh, So so shout out to you, dad. Uh, But great. So yeah, we're really happy to have you on the podcast today. So, so Bud, maybe, and we generally start with this question. Uh, Obviously you're not only a really successful physician, but also a really successful uh, practice owner, uh, which I know has become, uh, my dad is not a cancer doctor. He's a cardiologist, but I know it's getting much harder to 
run your own practice, maintain your own practice, kind of some of the other, you know, bigger hospitals that are coming in. But tell us, you're, you know, a successful doctor, a successful business owner, what sort of made you want to dive into politics and uh, run for governor, not once, but twice? So, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm a, uh, I'm a practicing doctor, community participant. You know, I try to make people's lives better. I do a little reading in, uh, in politics, and I don't remember exactly where I read it, but it basically came down to if you've had some success in life, if you have developed some leadership skills and you think you can help your fellow citizens, you're really obligated to run and see if people want to elect you for office. And I really come at it from that point of view. It's uh, to offer my services. And if people want me to serve them, in this case as governor, they'll elect me and I'll take the skills I've learned throughout my life and hopefully make their lives better. Well, we've got a ton of questions about politics and policy, but before we went there, I wanted to ask you about something more personal and mm-hmm. something probably a bit more challenging. Listeners who pay close attention to politics probably know that late last year, your wife was killed in an untimely car accident. And I was doing some research on you and I saw that you know when you were 14 years old, I believe your father passed away. Yep. So 50 years later, almost, you, you had a, a similar tragedy where someone was taken from you in an untimely uh, event. And so I, I kind of was just curious in, in those 50 years, and you've, you know, obviously as an oncologist, you're dealing with loss and you're counseling families through challenging times as part of your job. And then it hits you in this really personal way. How did you process? How are you grieving? And, you know, you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that your experience might be able to help others who are going through something similar. So what advice would you have for folks who are grieving the loss of a loved one? Yeah, uh, you know, the hard things in life are the most instructive. And if it doesn't break you, if it doesn't really destroy you, um, it makes you a better person. It makes you a better person. I know it sounds hard and you, and you want to be a better person in a, in a different experience way, but it does. You know, for me, it was turning toward my faith. I, I've, I've been a part of organized religion since I was seven or eight years old. That's a, something I just connected with my family, really not as much as me, nearly as much as me. And then the, the people around you, they really rally uh, and support you. And, and you really find out how people feel about you when you're, when you're down. You know, when you're when you're up, everyone kind of wants to be around you and you're successful and all that. But you really find, you know, how caring people are and 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 how by them joining with you and by you letting them in, it really helps you. And, I, and the other thing I really let myself do, I really let myself grieve. I, I you know, I cried a lot. Um, I, I I just felt it all. I let myself feel it. And it's helping. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not okay yet. I, I'm better. I'm way better than I was last December 1st when Selma died. So I'm not, I'm not fully there, but I can see, you know, the path of moving forward and, and a future uh, and bringing uh, my, my relationship with Selma forward as I can, but you can't live with people that have passed away. So it's a, it's a process of, of loss and grieving and moving forward and moving forward in life with optimism, not forgetting the past, not getting over it, but bring, you know, the long, the past that, that you can bring along. And again, letting other people help you. And if you're a person of faith, really turning toward your faith. So that'd be my counsel to people. And it's cool. You just need to live it. I think if we talk six months from now or 12 months from now, I'd have some additional, uh, you know, sense about that, but it's, uh, it helps take some of the edge off of you. I, I think a lot of times we get a little edgy and mean and it gets some of your cockiness out of you because if life breaks your way, you, you start thinking you know, highly of yourself. And you're just reminded by this kind of event that uh, we're very human, that a lot of your success is based on luck um, and that people really care about each other. That's where you really see it. So it's, it's been a, a good, terrible experience and I move forward. Thank you. Well, thanks for starting with such vulnerability and, and honesty. I think that's just... It's one of those issues where we talk a lot about political issues and policy issues where there's division and totally different ways of looking at things. But especially in you know the time of COVID where people are really thinking a lot about death, I think more than normal, it's just helpful for us to, to talk about that even in a political space. So we're all kind of, you know, it's the human experience, as you've said. So thank you. But with that, uh, Titus, I think you do want to transition to uh, some some policy talk. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for that, Bud. I know that's... Sure. Uh, you know, helpful for a lot of people who are dealing with loss around COVID and, and other life events too. So yeah, th- thank you for that. So yeah, let, let's transition into talking a little bit about uh, politics and policy, which is of course something Ben and I pretend to be experts at. Uh, 
But so, uh, uh, but I think, you know, uh, probably most of our listeners know you, at least from running for governor in, in 2016. Unfortunately, it was a very tough year for Republicans across the board, unless your name was Donald Trump, then it was probably the best year uh, <laughs> because you became president of the United States. But you ran against Governor Brown in 2016. Unfortunately, it didn't work then. You've decided to run again now in 2022. I, I imagine if I were you, you probably wish very much you could have a rematch versus uh, Governor Brown this time around. But of course, she's not allowed to be on the ballot again. So that's unfortunate. But I believe you're also the first candidate to get in the race. What, what's kind of the, what's the calculus there in terms of jumping back in again, right? I mean, imagine it was, it was you know, a big toll on you, both potentially financially, as well as just, I mean, running for public office is really difficult uh, and you're deciding to do it again. So what was kind of the onus of, of really wanting to jump back in for a second time and kind of seize the opportunity there? Well, once you have the experience, you're obviously open to, to jumping back in. You went in the first time. And um, so really what led me this time to go into it was watching the Portland's difficulties, I'll just use the words like that, last summer, where it's really endless, uh, you know, violence that government had really no response to. The first role of government is to have safety and protection of public and private property and completely inadequate. And you can see that infighting between the mayor and the governor and the metro and the county commissioners and different branches of law enforcement, the federal government. And what they really need to do, obviously, is to come together. They can they can fight it out behind closed doors, but you got to come forward with a unified policy because what the citizens want, they just want to be safe when they're walking down the streets and they don't want their property destroyed. It's really pretty simple. And then in Salem, my hometown, when people, the, the people, the tragic uh, people living, or the people who are living in tragedy, rather, in the, along the rivers and under the bridges and such, just came out in droves into the uh, streets of Salem, and uh, again, no real response. And the problem just keeps getting worse and worse. So I say the public safety in Portland uh, and the, the homeless situation, which there's no end in sight, no solution in sight. I decided I would uh, make my run. Well, we will, we will circle back to a couple of those topics later. I think the, the, the primary thing on most folks' mind right now is COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of fresh on the governor's reinstatement of her mask requirement. Um, she has said that all students will be required to wear a mask when they go back to school. And this is one where I've been very interested to talk to you about because, you know, obviously you've got the medical background. You're wearing a white lab coat as we speak. Yeah. Um, and I was somewhat surprised to hear you. Uh, there was an article that said you came out and basically said the mask mandate was a policy failure and that these decisions should be made locally in the local context. And I don't know if you saw the Oregonians editorial on Sunday, but basically the editorial agreed with the governor and said the governor gave these local authorities the option to act. And almost across the board, despite rising COVID cases and an increase in transmission, none of the local governments actually took any action to curtail the spread. So that's I'm curious as a physician and as someone who wants to be governor. How do you determine the balance of when local control is the right move and when the state needs to step in and say, we've got to get our arms around this? Yeah, Uh, turning over to local control doesn't mean do my policy without me doing it or I'll take it over. Local control means people decide locally what's best for their individual situation. And many times that's more effective because each situation is actually unique. What we know scientifically is the vaccines work. I came out strongly on that, not necessarily popular uh, with some members of my political party. I had a YouTube video last December. I get my injection. I'm telling people, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. Because the vaccine is incredibly effective in preventing you from becoming sick with COVID. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, I look at all the scientific data and I have a PhD and I look at research and, and it's not that I know everything, but I, but I look at it critically and that's what you learn. And the data on by far the most effective is vaccine. Second most effective is probably social distancing and just locking down. That actually is probably second most least effective by far is masking. And and again, what I would say is all social, all policy, public policy should be driven toward convincing people to be vaccinated, encouraging people to be vaccinating, using people to have influence in communities to be vaccinated. And what we're up against in all the Western democracies is even Israel, it's interesting to look at, I look at the data today, you know, 60 to 70% of people that are eligible to get vaccinated, the other people won't. And the other people are resistant to being told what to do. It's inherent, whether in America, whether in Europe, whether in Israel, and unless you have a totalitarian state, they're just not gonna do it. So I would rather, I was okay with the initial uh, uh, masking and social distancing, we had nothing else. I would change my philosophy to how can I 
get people to get the vaccine. 60 or 70% are gonna do it just because it's the right thing to do and you tell them. The other ones are gonna to have to be encouraged. And I think that by allowing people to have local control over their mandates, um, you'll get more people buying in and not feeling the government is oppressive. So you'll actually get the real thing you want, which is people protected, not going through a process that doesn't really protect them. And so I, I just think that's more effective. That's why I said it was a failure because it wasn't leading us to a higher vaccination rate because a vaccination rate is the effect of public policies. And that was my um, reasoning for saying that focusing on that and making people angry at government and saying, I won't do it is gonna make them not wanna get the vaccine. So quick follow-up and then I do wanna, I have a, a vaccine specific question. Sure. If you were governor, and you had sort of set this local control framework and said it's up to the counties and the cities to make these decisions and the counties and the cities aren't taking action and COVID is rising, what role does the state government have to intervene or direct resources or support? The government is there as encouraging, supportive, get in the trenches with the people, not dictating from Mount Olympus. I think that's the wrong approach. I think you're in the trenches, you're going to neighborhoods, you're giving talks, you're, you're meeting with the uh, local authorities, you're meeting with businesses, and you're saying, this works, you want to make this happen. You know, today, the, uh, the, uh, our, both our soccer teams announced that you're not going to games if you're not vaccinated. There's all kinds of ways of encouraging, you know, in the, in the country, in the South, if the, once Alabama says you're not going to a game unless you have a vaccine, well, <laughs> So I'm just 100%. Saying, you, gotta, you gotta be smart about this. So I'm just saying you gotta get in there. It's not dictating and I tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, I'm gonna I'm gonna just run over you. But you you gotta you gotta get out of Salem. You gotta go in there and you gotta get the people who are influencers and meet with them and motivate them and encourage them and, and you'll find the people. It's not a passive thing. A local control doesn't mean I accede to you and, and take care of it. Local control means I still am involved, it's still my responsibility. But, but darn it, I want you to take hold of this, uh, to take responsibility and to make it appropriate for each place where it is most appropriate. So in some cases, it's going to be tight masks. If you have 85-year-olds and, and, and they're not, a lot of them aren't vaccinated and they're ill, you're going to have social distancing. You're going to have N95 masks. You're going to have everything in the world. And if you have people that are very low risk and it's a low population, it's a different approach. But again, it's not a passive thing where you just say, oh, let it be and do what I say. I'm going to monitor. I'm going to fire you. It's like get in the trenches. I, I appreciate the nuance there because I do think that's the philosophical difference largely between Republicans and Democrats on the issue, but I like the, the nuance you've, you've described there. My vaccine question is, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center, but they do some great polling in Oregon um, with this large panel that they really try to focus their representation on people of color and rural folks who are often more difficult to sample. And I want to read an excerpt and then get your response to sure. it. Sure. They say the largest disparity in vaccination rates is by social ideology. People who identify as socially conservative are more than four times as likely to say they have not received a COVID-19 vaccine compared to those who identify as socially liberal. It's 56% to 13% respectively. And then 90% of registered Democrats report being vaccinated compared to just 53% of Republicans. So in a lot of ways, that paints a picture of this being a, a ideological problem and as someone who's running to be the, the uh, standard bearer in Oregon for the GOP, for the conservative-minded folks, what can be done to reverse that trend and to increase vaccination rates for folks who are sort of inherently distrustful of government and um, larger institutions? Right. So I think you hit it in the last sentence, distrustful of government. Don't trust government. So whether it be uh, social conservatives or African-Americans um, or people that don't trust government or institutions, you have to figure out how do I make them trustful of public institutions? That's actually a hard thing to do. Yeah. I know when I'm a doctor and I'm seeing African-American patients, one of the biggest things I have to uh, be able to do is get them to trust me and to trust my recommendations. And it's a lot easier with people that just come in and say, well, you're a well-trained medical oncologist, bud, and I trust you, just do it. I mean, you really have to convince them. So again, that's where local control, local influencers stand side by side encourage people because the people who are distrustful when you weigh on them they are more distrustful and that's i guess why so much of that's coming from our side and, and i would say to people the people who are trustful of our institutions and our government they're going to get the vaccine people need to get, the people who aren't are only going to get it if they trust the messenger and trust the message and if you try to force it on them because they're already distrustful they're not going to do it and that's why when you hear me talk i'm really talking to that group i'm talking to my group who I know is distrustful. And I know that if you try to force them, they're gonna reject it. 
And so I'm not, I'm not telling people, that's why someone, I was down and doing an interview to go, well, if the school district wants to have children wear masks, is that okay? If the school district locally decides they want to have children wear masks and they deal with the parents and they deal with the teachers and they decide that's the right thing for their, their situation, absolutely they do it. That's appropriate local control. If you have a, a small rural school way out in Eastern Oregon and they say, we're not going to do it, we're, we don't want to do it. And the government comes in and explains the situation and say, well, this is what, and they say, but we're on your side. We're advocating. We're going to help you in every way we can. One, they may or may not decide to wear a mask. They may think it's bad, but you're more likely to get them to get vaccinated in the long term. And they got, we got to build up their trust and confidence in government because that's what's tearing us apart. It's not so much difference in ideology, but people are so distrustful of government and of each other. We need to work on the trust. And how do you get people to trust institutions and it's not by trying to force them to do something they don't want to do Titus, before we transition i want to it sounds like um in hearing your responses to both those questions it sounds like your sort of eye on the prize is vaccination rates right. and you're not willing to risk social capital and conservative communities over masks if that's going to be an uh you know a, a something a barrier to vaccinations right Interesting. Okay. And I look at it that way. And again, as I look at the data on isolation, which isn't possible long-term and mass, it's very weak. I mean, you do what you can, but when you actually look at studies, look at case control studies, and there's really no randomized data, it's so weak. It's not worth it to me to give up and, and lose people who won't get vaccinated because this looks like an ongoing process. We're going to need repeated vaccinations. This is not a flu. This is not go away and show up in October and go away in April and get a flu vaccine and it's over. This is more like a, a common cold kind of virus situation where it's going to roll through us and different mutations. And we need everyone to get aligned. And, and if we can get that 80, 90% vaccine rate, we, we probably will be okay with repeated vaccination. So we need lots of trust. And so I'm I going away from it. Last question. I assume there, there've been an increase in legislators calling for what they call a vaccine mandate, or basically if you don't have a vaccine, you can't go to the grocery store, you can't go to school, et cetera. Uh, is there any context in which you'd favor that? Or you think that, I assume you think that would be a step too far. Yeah, I, I would just say that if, if we're facing the black death, the plague of Europe, where one out of two people die, if the mortality goes up and up and up, well, number one, people will do it. I'm convinced of that. People aren't, people aren't that, they'll be more afraid of the disease than they will of the vaccine. But again, I think the eye on the prize, the prize is vaccination rates. And how do you support that? And don't give that up for things that make you feel good, but don't really help in, the, in the, both the short and the long term. Don't give it up. Don't give it up. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, no, and before we transition, it's a good point too, because that's what I think a lot of people, what I, I think general is that when you uh, demand people get the vaccine in sort of a confrontational and I would say mean way, as a lot of people do on Twitter, uh, I think they're less likely to get it. And that is a good point too, that I mean, a lot of the people uh, who aren't getting it also are not just social conservatives, but also African-Americans and Hispanics. So we, of course, yeah. want to be able to, to keep safe as well. Right. But transitioning to maybe even a uh, more difficult topic than uh, <laughs> getting a 90% vaccination rate is the rebranding of the Oregon GOP. <laughs> uh, and Bud, you had said in, in a recent interview, uh, and I want to pull this up just so that I don't quote you wrong. Uh, I believe that you had said People just don't like us very much uh, when you were referring to Republicans in Oregon and kind of kind of the, the, the GOP in general. And uh, I think whether it's you or it's Stan Pulliam or it's Bridget Barton, uh, I think that your point still stands that the hardest challenge that whoever runs against the Democratic opponent in 2022 is going to be the brand of the Republican Party in general. So I'm curious from your perspective. Uh, one, how do you think we go about sort of changing that brand? And then two, what, what do you think is your unique approach to doing that as, as kind of the candidate and as the, as the leader of the party, really at, at the top of the ticket? We have to be way more welcoming. And I think we have to be welcoming and inclusive of people. And you have to let them in. You know, my wife was a incredibly conservative Asian woman, uh, grew up in San Francisco, was by default a, uh, a uh, San Francisco Democrat. But in terms of her values, incredibly conservative. Um, it was one of the great pleasures of my life to, you know, after I ran and lost and they asked me if I wanted to run locally, they, I said, no, I, it didn't work for me. And they got her to run and this quiet Asian woman who didn't want to talk about politics would register as a Republican for the first time uh, to vote for me and state as a Republican was suddenly the candidate. And I, and I talked to her about that and she goes, it just doesn't feel like, you, you know, we're really welcome or, or encouraged to join or participate. And the sense that we're given uh, positions of leadership and authority within the, you know, the party apparatus. And so I think that 
we just have to bend over backwards to welcome people in because there's a lot of conservative people, especially uh, African Americans. I went to the church's last campaign, uh, Latinos. I mean, they are conservative people, but they reject mm-hmm. us. They reject the conservative party, which is the Republican Party. So we just have to do a way better job, not just of saying the words, but being inclusive in a way that gives people authority within our party apparatus. I think I think that's a huge key, and that and it has to do with gender. It has to do with everything. There's a lot of you know, I great. Uh, 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 gay doctor friend, incredibly conservative, didn't feel welcome to the Republican Party. He's not, he's not going to be a member, even though politically he's 99% there. I mean, he's really, really there. So that's, I think, the key. I think for my candidacy, I've, people say, what kind of Republican are you? I'm a legacy Republican. And to me, the legacy Republicans are Abraham Lincoln. He's really the our first president. He's about freedom. I mean, that's what he stands for. You've got Vic Atia, who's about business. And business isn't there to make businesses a lot of money. I, you know, they may or may not make a lot of money. It's there to give people a job and, and a life, really. And then you have Mark Hatfield, dignified, honorable, respectful, uh, kind of quiet, the way real conservatives generally and uh, are, are tend to be more conservative and do stuff behind the scenes. They're not noisy. They're not annoying. They're not irritating. They're not in your face. And uh, finally, Tom McCall, the great environmentalist. And we should be the environmentalist party. And that's our legacy of success. And that's our legacy of a successful future and to focus on, you know, being successful in Oregon. And I'm going to carry that forward and we're going to give people a chance to vote for it. And uh, they're going to they're going to, you know, vote for it or not. What we need in Oregon is a win. And then we need to govern very well. And then that'll turn the tide. And and it's very hard. The Democrats lost for 75 years. They lost from 1875 to 1950. Nothing. All of a sudden they got a few wins and then they got in there and they got to govern. And so we have to have the same thing. I, uh, my final comment is I liken it as a candidate to going to King Arthur's court. There's a sword and a stone and you put your hands on it and you see if you're the one. You see if you're the one to pull it out. That's what it feels like. So, but, but again, we need to run. I, I, I like that. We won't always lose. We won't always lose. Someone's going to come along and win. But when they win, they need to govern effectively. And they need to show people that the, one of the real challenges we face and issues we face is government is so poorly performing. It's so impractical, lacking common sense. And that if you can get in and turn that tide even a little bit and get better performance out of the government, make people's lives better, we'll get our chance of going forward. But we, we just have to get a win. Have to get a win. And, and so, yeah, I, I think you, you bring up a lot of good points. But so part of the thesis of our podcast as well is that national politics has really overtaken uh, both local politics and also a lot of local issues. So uh, you may want to try to frame yourself sort of as Tom McCall or a Hatfield or something like that, but both a lot of the voters in our party, like the base, and then also the Democrats, of course, uh, are going to want to frame you as Donald Trump. Uh, And I think that that's it's become a lot more difficult because, of course, President Trump isn't in office anymore. But, uh, you know, h- how do you think that you sort of thread that needle to kind of avoid that trap? Because, you know, uh, as you said, Bud, you want to be talking about issues like homelessness, you know, unrest in Portland, schools, vaccines and things like that. But basically what they're going to want to talk to you about is, oh, no, Bud actually stands with Donald Trump's radical right wing agenda, et cetera. So how do you think that you can kind of thread that needle there? I think we should all um, speak about other people uh, in a in a way that is positive. I think I think we do better as human beings. Um, and and the other thing is we need to stay away from assuming we know motives when we know nothing about the motive, unless we're in the room with the person. I think that's an incredibly destructive thing. And you read that a lot, where people describe a policy and it's hateful and all that, and and they basically imply that the people who want to do the policy are hateful and they know nothing about the actual motives of the policy. But getting back to President Trump specifically, uh, I think that in 2016, the American people did something that they could not have foreseen. And this is what I'm gonna describe. Two things I think about the the presidency of Donald Trump. One, in April of 2020, we're facing a virus that is very threatening. This is very threatening to the world and we need a vaccine. And we're sitting there in April of 2020 and we have no vaccine. We've never made a vaccine against this kind of agent that has worked. It's really like a common cold more than, than getting the flu. And we have no success in that. And we have this president that's there. And eight months later, I'm getting a Pfizer vaccine in my arm that's highly effective in preventing serious illness, more than 90% effective. And actually, if you look at the 160 million people who have been vaccinated with both RNA viruses, both, both injections of RNA virus, the non-severe illness rate is 99.9%. So it's 99.9% effective to date. Now that may get lower, but it's that's it. So we got a president 
who stands there and eight months later, I'm getting a vaccine. And I would argue that without that president being president, running over everything in his way, doing anything he can to make it happen, probably breaking all the rules, I don't think I would have gotten that vaccine in my arm in eight months. I don't think we had another president in history that would have delivered on that. It's kind of like Winston Churchill in World War II. He wanted to be prime minister, but he said no. They're on the, on the, on the brink of defeat and they let him be prime minister and they win the war and they throw him out. So I, without knowing it, the American public had the right president for COVID. No one else could have done it. And I think the other policy achievement is having the courage to take on the Chinese. And again, my wife's Chinese American. I've been to China a couple of times, traveled. And if you go there, you right away understand that it's the, the Communist Party is the emperor of the past. That's just what they do. It's Imperial China. And that's just what you're dealing with. And you got to know that. And you got to know what you're dealing with and how they operate and how they think. And I heard many administrations talk about the unfairness of the Chinese and this, that, and the other. And this president actually did something. Now, we might be paying for it right now with the supply chain disruptions and everything, but it needed to be taken on. So I think when I talk about President Trump, he was the, I believe, the only president in our history who could get a vaccine in my arm in eight months. And he took on the Chinese issue as well as doing some other things. And that's all I'm going to talk about. I'm, I don't talk negatively about people. That's not my, my goal. I'm not there to tear them down. Um, it, it's easy to do. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to. Yeah, no, no. And, and that makes sense. And, and one thing that you you had talked about, and uh, actually, and, and funny enough, one of our uh, previous guests, who I think is also a listener, who may be your opponent in the general election, Treasurer Tobias Freed, uh, he had said this, and I never heard a politician say this, uh, and, and you sort of said it too, but not exactly. But he basically said, you know, I said, Tobias, you don't really seem like a guy who's going to yell at me that you're going to take my guns and shut down my church. And he's like, you're right. And I sort of tried that and it didn't work. And I was like really bad at it. So I became my authentic self and people started liking me more. And I was like, that's, you know, I, I thought it was funny because of course, uh, you know, very few people would admit that, but you sort of said the same thing kind of in an interview. Uh, you said basically, you know, people like Donald Trump because he was authentic. And of course, totally unfiltered. Donald Trump was who Donald Trump is. Uh, and you basically framed it too as, this is kind of part of that rebrand of the GOP of like, you know, you want to be authentic, bud, and you want to come out sort of uh, with authenticity. And that's what you really think has changed kind of, kind of from this time around. Can you just talk about what that looks like as a political candidate a little bit more? Uh, obviously, in some ways, you have to be a little bit scripted, right? Because, uh, you know, you, you want to know what you're going into with any meeting, at least the issues that you're going to talk about. But kind of what does like, I actually think this is a really important point for the Oregon GOP, because I think many times we come off as inauthentic to voters, which really hurts us at the ballot box. But what is authenticity as a candidate, especially a Republican and you know, we haven't won statewide or at least for the governorship in 35 plus years or whatever, what does that actually look like? So for me is it is bringing into the campaign who I really am. And uh, again, who I really am is most uh, uh, affects me is I'm a doctor. And a doctor is someone who has a fierce loyalty and care for their patient, uh, who basically will do anything that's not illegal to help their patient get better, uh, who tones down situations when, when emotions run high because we can't operate in a, in a situation where it's highly emotional and, and uh, antagonistic. You know, we look for um, bringing a team together of practitioners and, and, and caregivers and, and finding effective solutions you know, to problems and issues. So I think what people need to see of me on the campaign trail is the way I think, the way I process information, the way I try to bring people together, the way I try to lead people. And it has to be in my tone and my de demeanor and who I am. And uh, again, that may be a little boring, which is to my detriment. I understand that because a lot of politics in modern era is about you know, whooping it up and, and, and really playing on the emotions. And again, I think what, what people need to see from Bud Pierce is again, uh, someone who likes to bring people together, who's looking for solutions, who's willing to listen to, to all points of view, I really am. Um, and I just want to, you know, gel a team around an effort, stay on track and on focus and get the results that we want. And that's the kind of leadership that I'm going to try to bring. The other thing is, is that I love the trenches of life. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm 65 years old this year. Um, and I'm there every day with my patients. I'm on call and I'm, I, I, you know, I'm there. I'll go to the emergency department. I'm at the bedside. So the other thing that I need to try to bring to people is uh, I'm a hands-on doctor. I'd be a hands-on politician. And I mean that. So I think that, again, each candidate has to bring who they are as a person uh, and, and how life is, has, 
help them become what they are and to, to let people see that. And, and certainly some, you learn, the other thing they have to know is I will learn, I, do, I have learned to control my emotions and that's gonna be a good or bad thing. But again, for me and to work in my environment to think and to get things done, I have to do that. I think in this highly charged time that can be useful that I'm not gonna go off the rails. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, get uh, angry. I'm not, you know, I might feel anger inside of me, but I just don't do that. It's gotta be uh, that demeanor that is calm, calming, effective, and frankly, you can get the job done. Because what we need more than anything is government that works better, better, more effective, uh, can be problem solving and, and can just do the basics correctly. That's so what I mean. There's so much dissonance for me here because what you just described is the anti-Donald Trump. <laughs> and I, I, th I think it's, it's the, the, I'm struggling because, again, your medical background, I have deep respect for, but my, my, I think the largely on the left, the perception is that Donald Trump completely bungled the COVID response and that there were unnecessary deaths and that the government was dragging its feet and gave no real leadership like you, like you've talked about. And, and I think you've articulately described what the right perceives, which is a heroic president who, you know, gave us this vaccine in an unprecedented way. And it's, it, I think it's just a very poignant example of we are not living in the same reality in some ways in this country. And it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a serious challenge for our politics and our civic culture. Well, I could, I would say that on, from the left's point of view, you could say we could have, again, you could lock down society uh, and and do the, the restrictions faster, somewhat faster. I mean, you're probably talking a month or two, but ultimately, you're you're what you're really saying is you got to get a vaccine because you're not going to be able to lock it down and prevent this. You know, they locked down China and they're having their wave going in there now. You know, with the Delta virus variant. So so that that would have made you feel better. You're doing something for the first couple of months, and it certainly you know I, I, societies have done that. So I, you can argue that yes, if you would if you would take a different policy approach. For a one or two, the first one or two months, you would look a little different, but the vaccine is a key. And again, the people on the, to look at, if you've ever dealt with government and, and approving things and, and such, and in other words, you have this vaccine that's been given to 160 million people, it's not even FDA approved. I mean, that's clearly a little different. So again, obviously people broke rules to get into our arms and make things happen quicker. So people need to step back and look at um, what happened and then again, don't assign motive so much as people had policy choices and decisions to make and they decided one way or the other, you can criticize that. But, but again, the reason people wouldn't wanna lock it down is they look at the negative of locking things down unnecessarily. Well, if they were wrong, then that was the wrong policy, but the purpose wasn't to make the vaccine, to make the virus worse. It was because they thought it was more negative to lock down than it was to, you know, to do that. So, so I think again, if we look at each other from a more positive point of view and say, you know, I understand what you did. I think that's the wrong policy and I would do a different policy, but rather than attacking each other and saying, well, you just did this because you didn't care about America or something, that, that's, that's just so wrong. And, and, but we do it on both sides. I'm just saying that's so wrong. That's what's got us into trouble. Don't I assume you know motives or, or you ascribe bad motives to the people that you don't like and good motives mm -hmm. to the people that you like and just look at the event and then comment on it and, and say, well, you can see from this point of view or that point of view, but don't, don't, you know, and that's so destructive. You're starting to sound like a scientist, bud. So, <laughs> so, so um, transitioning to a different topic, something yeah. that I, another thing that I think I'm interested in your perspective, because I think it's unique. Um, money and politics. Mm -hmm. This has been a frequent topic in the state of Oregon for a long time because, of course, our campaign finance system, it's considered the Wild West um, yeah. nationally because basically any amount of money from anybody is legal as long as it's disclosed. Um, and you, you in particular, uh, are uh, self-funding much of your campaign, although I've noticed you, you have raised a lot of money from, from other folks. Um, small donors. Lots yeah, of and donors. Yeah. Small, small donors, large donors. You've got the whole gamut of folks yeah, yeah. In, in your or stars. So I guess so a couple questions. First is so I think last time it was it was north of one and a half million. Oh, that's a lot. Yep. And then this time I think you're already north of three hundred thousand. Yeah. So reflecting on the the sort of advantage that you are 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 given, given as Titus mentioned, you run the successful business, you make a lot of money in your profession which I think some folks would say, and I actually, interestingly, the, the dynamic that you um, are exemplifying, I have a sort of counterintuitive take for Democrats on this, which is 
A, I do think it makes you less susceptible to special interest influence because you're obviously not receiving money from other people. So why would you, you you're less likely to listen to them. But then the second piece is, I think it also, it makes me more nervous to limit campaign contributions because uh, if another person doesn't have the same wealth as you and they're running against you in a primary and all of a sudden you've got campaign contribution limits, that are 500 bucks or 1500 bucks a person, you're still gonna be able to constitutionally spend as much of your own money as you want on the race, whereas they're gonna be limited and won't be able to call on wealthy friends or wealthy individuals to support. So reflecting on the very complex campaign finance system we have now, A, is the current system in Oregon fair? And if not, what reforms are you interested in as governor enacting? So the first thing is I say as a Republican, I just like to have as much money as the Democrats. <laughs> it was five and a half million versus three and a half million. And, uh, and Newt Bueller, I don't know, raised 20 million. Governor Brown matched that 20 million. I think if you look at the last 20, 30 years, the Democrats have outspent the Republicans at every race other than maybe Dudley's race. It's Robert Dudley, yeah. That's but we right. just want as much money as the Democrats is the first thing I would answer. <laughs> and we know how that money flows in. And it's a different mechanism than small donors. Um, although... People make small donations and it gets in there. Interestingly, on campaign finance reform, one of the one of the parts they always say is that if a donor puts in a lot of their own money, then the rules are off. So that's always part of the legislation yep. to do that. So yep. the question I ask you is this. So I show up, I typically still work five days a week. And I typically show up in the office six o'clock in the morning. And I typically nowadays, because I have to get home earlier, somebody used to do everything for me. So I got to get home. I usually get home about six or so. And I got to spend two or three hours a night with charts. I do five days a week, and I'm on call on the weekend sometimes. I got night call during the week. So I have a tremendous time disadvantage. Mm. I have a tremendous – so how is that made up to me? One of the ways you can make that up is you can actually – some of the money you get paid for seeing a lot of patients and working is you can spend that to do stuff you could do by having your time. The other thing I would say interesting is when you come down to running against an incumbent, what is fair? But the incumbent has so much advantage by name recognition and mailers when they're in office and such. I would argue that I read once, I believe this. When you're an incumbent, the first time you run, you get 80% of the challenger money. Second time, if you go against 60. Next time, 40, and you probably end up at 20. Because again, you have such huge advantage. They win 95 plus percent of the races. And it's not because they're the, they just have the name recognition, they have the resources and all that. So I think real campaign finance restrictions, are you really gonna be fair? Because if you make it even against an incumbent, you, you actually make it even more to their advantage. You could say usually they raise more money so they have the advantage anyway. But I'm just saying it's a tricky thing to think about and what's fair. The other thing is, is since the Supreme Court ruled that you can limit giving to a candidate but not your, the amount of money you wanna spend on campaigns, they, they form shadow groups. Mm -hmm. and so there'll be a shadow group that wants Bud Pierce if I'm the nominee to be governor and they can spend whatever they want and they can say whatever they want with me having almost no influence. Yeah, and you're not so accountable. Okay. So, so therefore, as long as that stands, you can't really reform the system. And again, I would just say, what you're really saying is two things. One is to make it more fair and then how are you going to balance off time? How are you going to balance off celebrity status? Because if you start off as a celebrity, you're way ahead. Should you be penalized? You know, I mean, it, you know, you, you get all this. And I think the real thing that we're talking about, though, is one thing is who gets elected. I think that's important, obviously. But the next thing is corruption in politics. And, and what you're pointing to is a lot of times when people give money in the political sphere, they want something tangible back. They want, basically they want a special advantage. The reason it's so hard for doctors and private practice to be successful is I, if, if I own my practice, I get $100 for seeing you. If, if Salem Health owns my practice, they get $200 for me seeing you in the same setting. And if OHSU owns my practice, they get $400 for me seeing you in the same setting. And by the way, there's the special discounts they get on buying the most expensive parts of practice. So, and those were carve outs for political support enacted at a national level. And so again, the more that government treats all entities equally, that the small business person gets the same advantage or disadvantage as Nike, Intel, Facebook, then we won't probably have such an intense drive to fund candidates to get a special financial award. And that, you know, and that's a whole different thing. That's about ethics in politics and getting rid of corruption in politics. So I think the first one's very challenging. How do you make it fair so people can really run and have a chance? Um, and the second part uh, is how do you really get the corruption, which is I want something tangible for my donation, and that's the expectation. And I, and I think the second part is, is, is it can be done ethically, but has to be obviously looked at with transparency. 
And the first part, um, if people come up with a good proposal, you know, I, I would look at it and all that, but I think it's very tricky to make it fair. It's so quick, quick um, follow up on that. And then we're going to talk, turn to a topic I know you want to talk about. Um, if the, one of the, the, the frameworks the legislature was playing with in the last session was contribution limits of some amount, plus a public financing mechanism where if you receive a certain number of small donors, then the government actually pays the campaign a certain amount of money to sort of equalize, try to equalize or incentivize, I guess, um, small dollar participation. Is that something you could see yourself signing if the details were correct? Or does that framework a non-starter for you? I'm not against that. As long as the incumbents have a penalty, I'm not going to have the incumbents as same as a challenger. I think that's, I think that's completely unfair. Interesting. Uh, they they got to have a penalty because if you want to give the challengers a chance, you know, maybe it doesn't play such a role in the primary, uh, but in the general election, the incumbents need a penalty because they win 95 plus percent of the time. They're not the best candidate 95 percent of the time. They're just not. OK. They've All right. Out. They've rigged it. They've rigged it. <laughs> We've got. We've got Bud Pierce, also known as the Bernie Sanders of Oregon, talking about our, our rig system. I was walking across the street to a steakhouse in Salem. Rudy said, they go, there's Bernie, there's Bernie. And I, I was cracking up. Like, wow, man, he's 80 years old. I'm 65, but I'm a doctor and I look old. I'm old. I'm in 30 years. I'm probably 80 years old. So. Like, my, my hair looks way better than his. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Bud, I wanted to circle back to something you had uh, originally uh, talked about before, which is uh, unrest in, in Portland. Oh, yeah. And uh, I actually just wrote about this in an article that I, I quoted you and Stan Pulliam in talking about downtown Portland. And uh, shootings are on track this year to be potentially over a thousand, uh, which for folks reference in 2019, I believe it was even less than 500. So almost double basically from 2019, if not more, uh, someone can fact check me on that. Uh, we're approaching potentially having the highest homicide rate on at least in the last 35 approximate years or so, potentially ever on record. Uh, I was in Portland last week, and I mean, there's like, a, they have a guard now with the Voodoo Donuts, which to me is just wow. absurd. And I mean, it's it's even clearly gotten to a point where uh, in the, the bar district, they've, uh, I don't know who's paying these people. There was the article, it was all over the place, Fox News, local media, where there is former soldiers were guarding local businesses and patrons with AR-15s walking around on the street. That was that was a Willamette uh, Week article that everyone should read. It was mind-blowing and terrifying, frankly. Yeah. But yeah, good reference, Titus. Yeah, yeah and I mean, you, ha you have to think, right? But no matter if you're on the left or the right, uh, that's insane, right? That, I mean, a bus businesses are hiring people, private contractors, essentially, to defend businesses in a, in a place in the United States of America, right? I mean, that's it. Standard thing you might see if you travel abroad, that is not anything I've seen in a major city across the country, especially that's not in total chaos. So, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of curious from you, one, uh, let, let's, let's, let's do a little bit more high level. What, like, what do you think is, is sort of the main symptom of what is causing this, right? I think we can talk definitely further about kind of the details and specific solutions, but clearly something is very wrong with the city of Portland when it comes to, to safety and public order. Yeah. What, what do you think that is? What do you think is going on? So I was in Chicago last week and, you know, you hear, you read about Chicago, you think it's, wow, this is a terrible place. And you get, wow, is it safe compared to Portland? I, and we have a place we bought in uh, Pearl in 2008. And so I go there on some occasions still. And uh, Chicago, uh, no boarded up, no graffiti. You see police officers kind of standing there by their bicycles, people moving along. Went through a fair amount of Chicago. I didn't go to the rough section. You don't go there. Uh, but again, uh, I'm not in the, talking about the rough section of Portland uh, either. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. It's, it's terribly bad. Um, you know, you always have the veneer of civilization. Uh, we try to be as, as good as we can be, but there's something about us as human beings. There's these impulses within us. Uh, there's anger, there's hatred. Um, and it's easy to come out. It's easy to come out. And societies that build structures that allow people to... Um, dissipate that anger and hostility in, in somewhat non-destructive ways. And at the same time, maintaining whatever presence of uh, law enforcement uh, that is necessary when people get out of control to stop them from acting out uh, is what you need to do. You know, I grew up outside of an Air Force base, uh, multiracial, blue collar, you know, your dad teaches you, um, well, if someone's doing something wrong, you gotta ask them nicely to stop. And when they, uh, 
uh, when they don't stop, you need to stop them. And you just have to stop, you have to stop bad behavior. It's not with violence, it's with appropriate level of force. Um, and again, what I say to people, you know, I'm a Marine by uh, personality and training. That's the other side of this nice doctor. And we don't yield on these issues. We're gonna have safety. We're, gonna, we're going to need more presence of law enforcement in the short term. We're gonna need to figure out how to dissipate people's anger in non-confrontational ways. That's again, to get buy-in from community leaders and influencers. And it just has, to, and again, it's in the trenches. It's like, it's basically, you get inaugurated in January and you go down and you have dinner on Broadway someplace in some restaurant, you have the mayor and the county commissioner head and you have Metro's head and I know most of them and you have a nice dinner, you walk the streets and you keep going back. And you, and you, and you basically say to people, this is gonna be safe. And people who are intimidators and thugs on the left or right, people who are bullies, let me just say bullies, people who are bullies and intimidators, we're gonna take them off the street and arrest them. And we're gonna keep arresting them over and over. And you don't have the right to intimidate and bully people. You just don't have that right. Not looking to hurt anyone, not looking to damage you, and you just don't get tired of it. And, and so, you just have to do that. I, I, I wanna ask a, a follow-up and maybe get some a quick policy take from you because the dynamic you may be up against, and I don't know, I don't like, I don't know what the state of the political environment will look like, but there's two actually an analogous situations going on in Oregon. One is Josephine County, as an example, mm -hmm. whose citizens have routinely rejected levies um, to pay for public safety. So you have like three hour or 12 hour wait times for emergency responses. So I think there's a, in a lot of rural Oregon, there's a feeling of a lack of public safety, which a lot many would argue that's a local government county and city issue then you've got the city of portland who it is possible that you would have a majority of folks on the council uh who don't want to spend any more money on police and that's part of the william week article is because of cuts and inability to hire officers they had to take their their basically their like nightlife crew all the way down to two people um for that entire old town district you're the governor of the state. So your options are basically, as far as I know, and maybe you can explore some others, you can either send state police in to some of these places who lack uh, um, public safety. You can try to rally the troops locally to get the local governments to enact solutions, but they probably won't or may not. What else can be done as the statewide leader to support or force these local governments to provide public safety for their citizens? So leadership is about uh, rallying people around the idea of public safety and then getting the job done. And there is no clear roadmap to success. It's no different than joining a medical practice um, that has six employees and three doctors. I'm the third doctor, take care of a few hundred patients a year. And now we have 10, 12 locations, a couple hundred employees, take care of many thousands of patients. And we're a, you know, we're a hundred million dollar business this year. And that wasn't by telling anybody one thing what to do. That was like having a goal and a dream of providing great care to patients and a great work environment for the employees and problem solving and getting people to buy in and figuring out how to do it. So again, not standing back on Mount Olympus and dictating down from above, you will do this. Um, uh, you just don't get it done. That's what leadership is. Leadership, and it'll be very easy to tell if I'm successful, if I'm governor, because Portland will become very safe. It'll be safe the way it was and people will be able to live in harmony. And there, it's usually a carrots and stick approach. If you if you have access to some way to help the cities, you 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 talk about that behind closed doors. This is what we're going to do. This is what we can do. Is this adequate? Is this can this get us off this where we're stuck? And then getting more performance out of government. You know, one thing I get tired about in this COVID pandemic is that we have we spend almost one fifth of our GDP on healthcare. It's like eighteen percent. You know, it's a tremendous amount of money. And right now, I think we have eight hundred and fifty patients with COVID in our hospitals, and I don't know. 220 on in the ICU and 120 on ventilators and we can barely keep up. I mean, really? What if we have Cascadia and we got 10,000 dead and 100,000 wounded? I mean, is that all we can get out of, our, out of our government services for the amount of taxes we pay? So I think part of the whole redo is not only being focused, it's got more value out of it. But again, that's a leadership. Do I believe that I can go into the failing structure of leadership we have now, send some dictate down from Salem to Multnomah and say, this is what I want you to do. do it. That's, that's nothing. That's not a policy. Basically, policy is getting in there, working with the leadership. They want, they want a safe Portland. They want to prosper. What can we do to make it work together, hash out our disagreements behind closed doors, and come out as a unified front? And that's what leadership is.
It's uh, the task and motivating people. And that's, you're going to succeed or fail on your leadership. And that's it. There is no policy other than you come up with a plan that's pretty good and start enacting it. And the minute you start on your plan, it's going to fall apart in some way. And then what, what do you do to make it work better? That's leadership. I'm running for leadership. I'm sure we're, there will be more to come on this issue. And, and um, when the Democrats start jumping in, I think this is going to be an interesting one to ask the Democratic I Party as well. I Shifting shifting quickly to policy and noting that you've got some charting to do this evening. So uh, in our last few minutes here, uh, in Oregon, the governor is also the superintendent of public instruction and the um, essentially the head of Oregon's school system um, because of a, a weird statutory change that the legislature made several years ago. And when we asked Stan Pulliam this question, his basic response was the governor shouldn't be superintendent of public instruction. That doesn't make any sense. You seem to be taking a more hands-on approach in your campaign. I think it says that you you want to take us from what you describe as uh, the bottom 10 or the bottom five to the top 10 in public education, which obviously is fraught with statistics and measurements and how you determine that. I might quibble with the, the distinction that we're in the bottom 10, but broadly speaking, talk to us about education policy, the role of the governor in education policy, and what specifically you would hope to accomplish as governor. Sure. So in my last campaign, this came up a lot and I, and I did a lot of studying and what really struck me was Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts, we think it's that hotbed of, of innovation and medicine. You got Harvard, you just got, you, you know, they're, they're prosperous, they're intellectual. Um, and they had a terribly performing school system. They, they, it, was, it was by all measures just terrible. And they somehow got the will in the 90s to reform the system. And they, they basically created an oversight board that was as apolitical as possible. In other words, the goal was actually educate and train the, the, the students to the highest level. They, and they actually had people who wanted to do that. It was as much as they could separate from politics. And what they, what the, the basic things they did is they had a variety of options for the students. They had some learning academies. They had some career-focused schools. Um, they had uh, more uh, career technical education. Um, they, uh, for the new teachers coming in, they had higher uh, teaching standards. I always say that it, I, I, I was taught mathematics in high school outside of Air Force Base by someone with a master's in math, not a master's in education. It's good to have a master's in education, but the guy really knew his math. And so I went to UC Riverside, I was way, way well prepared. I'd like people with a bachelor's or a master's in chemistry or physics to teach that in the schools, or again, someone well-trained in, in, in shops and mechanics. Um, they had uh, parent boards involved in the local schools that weren't there to just ask for more money for the schools and to do you know, PTA work. They were there really interested, really interested in again, improving the school. And they had, it's almost like a, a practical school board almost at each school and that kind of innovation. So I think that again, if you follow a state that has reformed in an effective way with a variety of options for the students. In other words, everyone doesn't have a size nine foot. So we don't just have a size nine shoe. We have a lot of options, as many as possible that you uh, raise the standards for the new teachers coming in and the ongoing training and you fund going forward as reforms occur. So we're gonna do this as the reforms, we're not gonna dump the money in and say reform, it's gonna come together. So you're rewarding the behavior that you want. I think that's just huge in terms of reform. It's, it's oversight, real parental involvement, a variety of options, set higher standards, don't get rid of your standards. And you remember you test students for the purpose of knowing where their gaps are so you can train them better so they'll be educated and have a good life. We should obviously be training our teaching, testing our students now to find out how much they lost and, and then to try to figure out a way to make it up. Not to not test our students because we're afraid of being embarrassed because we weren't able to educate them in the time of the COVID crisis. Well, that's, that's not realistic, but we don't expect them to educate well in the time of COVID crisis. That's very difficult, but how far are they behind? Where are they? So testing is done so you know the gaps in the students and maybe the gaps in your programs. Where, where do you have weakness? So again, the whole idea is wrong. It, it doesn't have that focus. It's like a bad medical practice. A good medical practice takes care of the patient. The patient is the center of the effort. A bad medical practice is about the practitioner. Quick quick follow-up before yeah. Titus moves to the last question. Yeah. Which, um, which metrics, maybe two or three or four metrics would you use to determine whether or not we're in the top 10 or whether or not the health of the system is good? What what indicators would you look for within the system to be able well, to tell? Well, well I, I do think the graduation rates, real graduation rates matter. I do think that standardized testing uh, has a value. And I think that the final metric is um, 
you would follow long term to see the success of your students and you and you would actually go beyond even the, their next step so if you're preparing them for an academic pursuit you'd look at you know frankly jobs and their success in job placement when they finish the next level of education and for career technical and such you'd look at their ability to get placed and get a good job i think that's you have to it has to be a long-term effort that's why you probably need a group of people uh, a working committee, a, a deciding committee of three to seven people, and then maybe a, a larger committee that they report to of a dozen or so people that's keeping track of this for the long term. It's a long term investment. It's not a if you get in, you have your four years and it should be blown up and someone else should do it. And that's where, again, the leadership, if you can create programs, they'll stand the test of time. They're good programs. They can be carried on to the next administration. I think that's very key. Thank you. Great. So, Bud, we have uh, one, what, or two more quick questions, and then and then we'll let you go because okay. uh, Evan and Blair might get upset with us if we if, if we keep you for too long. Okay. Uh, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask of people who are currently running for office, especially on the Republican side, since there's so many people who've declared in the field. But I'm sure, as you're aware, there is only one person who has declared they're running for governor on the Democratic side. It was Casey Kula, who okay. uh, we actually just interviewed and will be releasing. I guess it, it will be released by the time we release this. Right. Uh, who do you think will be your most likely opponent heading into uh, into the election? And in short, who do you think you're going to be running against? I think the two potential candidates that I look at as likely are Tobias Reed and Shamir Fagan. Interesting. Very interesting. okay. Okay. We will. We'll, yeah. we'll, when when the when the general election comes, we'll uh, we'll bring you on and see how you're okay. see how you're doing when you're running against <laughs> whoever it is. Sounds good. Great. And then our last question, uh, a pretty easy one, Bud. And thanks again for, for your time and, and for coming on the pod. Uh, where can people follow you? Where can they find your work? Where can they find your policy positions? Uh, if they want to learn more about Bud, uh, where should they go? BudPierce.org. BudPierce.org. It's all there. Okay. Very good. And I was going to say your communication staff trained you very well because sometimes folks are like, oh, I forgot, <laughs> I forgot the website name. Uh, you know, that was the last election. That was the last thing. I can tell you, the first time you run, especially, boy, it's like coming at you too quick and you don't know what your brain's doing. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, good. Well, it's good you have that experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bud, thanks so much again for joining. Uh, we, we had a great time. And everybody, please make sure to uh, subscribe and give us five stars. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks again. Thanks, Dr. Pierce. Bye. Thank you. Great interview.